0: Well, excellent. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, for those of you, I'm going to put this here. Okay. Well, and uh, thank you so much for that welcome this morning. And thank you all so much for being here on the Lord's Day. Uh, It is always great to see uh, friends here and familiar faces. Uh, As Pastor Aaron mentioned, uh, I am one of the pastors over at Christ Church, and um, I'm sure I speak for the other pastors as well uh, when we have an opportunity to come here. Uh, and see all the great work that is being done through this local church, uh, that we had a, a, a small part in helping uh, get off the ground. Uh, it does uh, my heart good. I know it does the other pastor's heart good. Uh, and normally I would only say this kind of thing when Pastor Aaron's not here, but he did pay me a little bit before. Uh, so, uh, so I can tell you this, that if you don't already know this, uh, you guys are uh, tremendously, tremendously blessed uh, in uh, having Pastor Aaron uh, to shepherd you uh, and to lead you here in this local church. God has gifted him uh, in in such amazing ways. And I, I think, um, I know because he did it, uh, that, that God has custom built uh, Pastor Aaron because there's really no reason that, you know, this a bundle of quirks and oddities should all exist in one person. Uh, and yet, uh, there he is, and he exists for you. Uh, God has uh, placed this shepherd uh, with you uh, to serve you, and, uh, and, and I thank the Lord for him and his friendship, and I hope you thank the Lord uh, for him and his friendship and his leadership here at Redeemer City Church. So enough of that, uh, Pastor Aaron, make checks payable to uh, Joe Garner. All right, so if you would take your Bibles, uh, open them up, or slide them open, or click them open, or whatever you happen to do. Uh, we're actually going to be in a couple different texts this morning. We're going to uh, begin in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. So if you want to go ahead and open up there to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, uh, but I would also maybe place a little bookmark, or stick your finger, or use the, if, you, if, you're, if you're a dinosaur like me, and you, you use a real Bible, or I'll be mean, a physical Bible and you've got the little flappy cord thing, uh, you can put it back also on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. So we're going to start in Ephesians 6, verse 4, and then also move uh, then to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. You know, I, I love um, disclaimers. I love warning labels, right? Uh, caution, this is hot. Uh, caution, slippery when wet. Uh, caution, May uh, uh, you know, don't operate heavy machinery after taking this, this you know, these sort of things. So I feel like that this sermon uh, requires a, a, a bit of a warning label, right? Um, and I say that to say that the discussion, uh, the exposition that uh, I pray that you will see this morning uh, is sensitive. It's a very sensitive topic. It's a very personal topic. Whenever uh, any pastor gets in front of you and says, uh, guys, when it comes to your children, the Bible says do X. Anytime you, those words come together and you open your mouth and you say them, um, my experience has been stuff usually gets thrown at you, right? Because as a parent, it's, it's a very personal thing, right? Uh, we, we don't like it when people... Uh, maybe tell us what to do or tell us we ought to do these things, and particularly when we are not doing them, right, or we don't know why we should do them, or we actually maybe don't think we should do them. Um, And so I just, I want to offer that disclaimer up front, right, that chances are at some point in my message today, you will disagree with me, and that's okay. We are still brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and what's even better is that you guys don't pay me, so I can say whatever I want, right? Thank you for laughing at that. But, but no, seriously, what, what I want to do today, my, my goal today is to show you from the text, from scripture, what Jesus calls the household, right? Particularly the head of the household, the father, but, but regardless of its arrangement, what Jesus causes the household to model for discipleship and education, that it be founded on the Bible. That's that's my goal today. That's what I'm striving to do. So that being said, let me ask this question. What do we do with the gifts that God has given us? You may or may not know this, but all of us, every one of us here in this room has been given certain gifts. Now, that's true regardless of whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. Right, if you're not a Christian, if you're just a breathing human on this earth, right, you've been given gifts. You've been given the gift of breath. You've been given the gift of life. Right, you've been given the gift of uh, rain on the just and the unjust. Right, you've been given what's called these common grace gifts. But if you are a believer, you have also been given gifts. You've been given many gifts. I'm not talking just about spiritual gifts. Trust me, we're not going to hand out any spiritual gift surveys. Those are painful, uh, and Will won't even get me started on that. But we've all been given gifts, is my point. The question is, one of the questions I want us to start us off as we think about the topic of our kids and education is what do we do with the gifts that God has given us, right? Those of you that are parents, you may be able to see this and associate this. Are we treating the gifts that God has given us a bit like our kids treat that Christmas present that we really thought that they wanted. And it lasted maybe, oh, I don't know, two weeks. And then there it is under their bed and it's been there for three months and they don't even know where it is or what it is or that they even got it in the first place, right? Uh, The other day, I have have five kids, just disclaimer. uh, So if I'm a little twitchy, that's why. Um, I have five kids, Uh, my oldest two uh, are here with me today. Uh, the younger three, uh, I don't take them out in public that much. And so um, I have five kids and, and age ranges and ranges, and every year it seems like uh, they come across a gift that we gave them or a grandparent gave them uh, that is literally still in the box, right? It got tucked away at some point in a closet or tucked away here and there, and the, the, the gift has never been used. Or when the gift is not used appropriately, right? Now I know Pastor Aaron's sweet little angel babies would never do this, but 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 mine have a tendency sometimes to use their gifts in ways that aren't aren't really what they're meant for, right? So like when you you give them this really awesome uh, paint set, right? So I've got a, one of my daughters is is, is an artiste, and uh, she gave her a little paint set, uh, but when she paints uh, the wall in the kitchen. That's not quite what that gift was intended for, right? It was intended for the paper, not for the wall, right? The the sticker collection of, of 50,000 stickers is intended for, you know, to be put on paper and decorated, not to be put on the back of dad's pants that he wears all day and that everyone laughs at. He doesn't figure out until 2 p.m. what, you know, what people have been laughing at all day. You know, that sort of thing. Right? What do we do with the gifts God has given us? Are we like these kids or like my kids or or do we treat them differently? Consider the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Jesus tells a story of a rich man who goes off to another country and he gathers his servants together and he gives them all some money and he says, all right guys, I'm going to be back and uh, when I get back, you're going to have to show me what you've done with the money that you've given, right? So Jesus returns, he goes to the servants and Some of them doubled what were given. Uh, Some of them got just a little bit more than what was given. But one of them basically just sat on his hands, didn't do anything, right? And this is Jesus' response to an improper use. The talent, by the way, is just money, right? An improper use of God's gifts. This is how Jesus responds in Matthew 25. So take the talent from him, the servant that didn't do anything with God's gift, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given and will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point here. Christian, is that the Lord has given you many talents, many gifts. And as a church, as this local expression of a body of believers, the church too has been given many talents and many gifts. What about children? Are children talents? Are they gifts from God? Well, I hope we would say yes, of course, obviously, right? Parents, your children are a talent, a gift from the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3 Behold, children are a heritage, in other words, literally an inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, I would say this applies not only to parents, but even churches too. Churches are responsible for the blessings they have been given. So much of this sermon today is going to be directed to parents, but even those who have older children or grandchildren or even those who are single but a part of this local church, we all, in some sense, have a level of concern for the family in your life and also for the family, the children of the congregation. Consider the covenant promises of Deuteronomy 6. Every time, particularly in the Old Testament, that God reveals his promises to his children, there's always, um, you could say, maybe a a tag at the end or a footnote at the end. There's an assumption that these promises will be transmitted, will be given to the next generation. You see this particularly in Deuteronomy 6, where God gives his word uh, he gives his promise in the Shema and that, that God will keep them and bless them. And then he commands them in Deuteronomy 6 to teach these things, to teach the law to the children always. Right? Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones, these children, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea Matthew 18 verse 6 so yes we as the church we as believers as a covenant people we have a responsibility towards the towards the children the gifts that he has given us so how then do we best steward these talents how do we best steward these gifts these children that God has given us and frankly we should all be asking this question regularly As true as individuals, especially, again, as parents, but it's true of all individuals, and it's true of local churches as well. We should all be asking these questions regardless of our stage of life. Now, much can be be said. We could talk all different sorts of topics regarding the stewardship of our children. But today, what we're going to do, we are going to focus on a particular way God has given households, and by extension, local churches, to steward the gift he has given. All right, so let's read our first text today. So, again, our texts are Ephesians 6, verse 24, 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 14 through 17. Essentially, what we have here in Ephesians 6, verse 4, we have the command, the command of Christ for us concerning our children. And then in 2 Timothy 3, we have the means by which we accomplish that command. Okay? So, that's the reason for the two texts the command in Ephesians 6, and the how to accomplish the command. In 2 Timothy 3. So let's look first at Ephesians 6. uh, Beginning there in uh, verse 4. It's fathers. Uh, Fathers here is representative of the households. This is households at large too. Uh, But fathers. Do not. Provoke your children to anger. But bring them up. Literally nourish them. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this command here, do not provoke them to anger. Now, this is more than, you know, so we can read that and say, okay, as long as my little one doesn't pitch fits in Walmart, we're good, right? But there's a lot more here than just that. Yes, that is true, right? But there's more to it than just that, right? more than just the grumpy toddler or the grocery store tantrums consider ecclesiastes verse 7 uh, or chapter 7 verse 9 be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools one of the main characteristics one of the main marks of a fool if you know anything about the old testament particularly the wisdom literature a fool is a shorthand of way of saying one who does not live according to God's word. Does that make sense? Right? So a fool, one of the marks of a fool is anger. So one of the things Paul is saying here is don't let your kids be a fool. Right? Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of the fools. Anger is a sign of, Of the fool, and the fool, as Proverbs says, sits in the way of sinners and is destined for a banquet in the grave. Proverbs 6. Provoked, irrational anger is the opposite, actually, of the character of God, who is described as long suffering. So, again, just in this one word, there's a lot here that has to be unpacked. In other words, if you would have your children be Christ like and not fools destined for destruction, then you will follow this command, the second half of Ephesians 6, verse 4. You will follow this next command to bring them up, to nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, when Paul writes this word discipline originally, he wrote the word paedia, the paedia of the Lord. So the way in preventing your, or one of the ways in which, by which we may prevent our child, obviously all of this is under the category of may, right? One of the ways in which we may prevent our child from being a fool, right? From having anger lodged in their heart and being a fool is by raising them up, nourishing them in the padea of the Lord. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning, the padea of the Lord. That is the solution. That is the key that unlocks the door if you will so that takes us then to 2nd Timothy 2nd Timothy 3 2nd Timothy 3 starting in verse 14 gives us what the pedia of the Lord is how does the pedia of the Lord prevent our children from being provoked to foolishness being provoked to anger so let's read that together uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But as for you, this is Paul writing to Timothy, a uh, pastor at the church of Ephesus. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings of, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That word training there, by the way, is padea training of the Lord, training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this is where we are going to spend our time this morning, is how to bring up our kids, how to bring them up, how to nourish them in the padea of the Lord, in the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. So let's begin with the most obvious question. What in the world is the padea of the Lord, right? What is that? What is Timothy trying, or what is rather, what is Paul trying to get across to Timothy here? Now, Timothy was brought up, as we would say in the South, or he was educated um, in the Padea of the Lord. See, we see that in verse 14 and 15. Paul is referring to Timothy's childhood as he was raised, and he was instructed Um, uh, in his faith and really in all things by his mother and his grandmother. uh, He was brought up in this Padea of the Lord. Timothy uh, had a Greek, possibly pagan father, but a Christian mother and grandmother. But even beyond this, growing up in a Jewish culture, uh, Timothy's father was Greek, but his mother was most likely ethnically Jewish. Jewish children began instruction, much like we do, formally at age five. And this included reading, writing, mathematics, etc. But everything that they did, everything that they did was founded and guided by the sacred writings. The context of Timothy, obviously, the Old Testament specifically. The Bible then is the basis of reality. It was the foundation of everything that was learned. It was how the good, the true, and the beautiful were defined. Children were trained as early as age five again to measure all things inside and outside of themselves by this rule. In other words, the Bible was the norming norm that norms all other norms, right? It is the standard by which all things are measured. Now, the same, whether we realize it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, quite frankly, the same is true for us today. Scripture, God's word, is the core of everything that we can know. It is the bedrock upon which all true knowledge rests. Look back here at our text, verse 15. Scripture makes us, we are acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make us what? Wise for salvation through faith. So they help us probably in the most important way. They give us the most important knowledge, and that is the knowledge of the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is the means by which Jesus is revealed to us today. But Scripture is also profitable for teaching. Right? This basically, in context, means doctrine, theology, what we can think and know about God. Verse 16, it's also profitable for reproof and correction. In other words, it's profitable for telling us, don't do this, but do that. Right? What we would probably call ethics. Right? So it's profitable for salvation, for doctrine, for ethics, and that's when you say, all right, good, well, that's, that's it, we're done. We, we close the book on the usefulness of Scripture with those three things. Well, not quite, not quite. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, Scripture is also profitable for training in righteousness, training the padea in righteousness. Now, when we think righteousness, oftentimes we just think in terms of, well, being good, being right with God, and that's true. Right? That's part of what that means. But when Paul's using this word here, what he's really trying to get across is this, this training in righteousness, this padea of the Lord. What this means is literally everything. What he means is right thinking, not just right action, though that's included, but right thinking. And not just limited to doctrinal or ethical issues, but right thinking about everything, all things, The training in righteousness, the padea in righteousness is rightly ordered living. Living as God would have us live. It is comprehensive. It stretches into every single area of life. And friends, there is nothing, nothing, not a bit of this universe that the Bible does not touch in some way. For the Greeks, particularly the, the majority of Timothy's congregation, for the Greeks, they understood the word paideia as being about education as well. It's the reason Paul uses this word in this context, both in Ephesians and here in Timothy. Paideia was all about education as well. So both the Hebrews and the Greeks understood paideia to mean what we would call education. This is why Paul uses the word. It would have been instantly recognizable in the Greek world. Greek children were trained to be fully humans, where we get the term humanities from. Right? They were trained how to live and how to operate in a Greek world with logic, rhetoric, philosophy, history, even geometry. They invented the doggone thing. Right? In other words, they were given a culture. They were given a culture. They were given a system of understanding and thriving in the world around them. This culture, this system of understanding the world around them, this, in a very, very tight nutshell, is the Greek concept of Padea. And what I really want to get across here is we're not just talking about empty knowledge. We're not just talking about vocational training. We're not just talking about uh, being a good citizen, right? as we often kind of think of modern education, but being a right-thinking, well-ordered human. That is the point of education. That is the point of the padea of the Lord, is to be a right-thinking, well-ordered human. The padea of the Lord, then, is seeking to disciple, to educate our children to be rightly ordered humans, as defined, and this is where the Greek is, Greek has the good system, but they need the substance of the Bible, right? As defined by the sacred writings, as it says here in our text. Training then, all training, all education ought to be centered on the word of God. And here's the reality, friends, and this is if you get anything that I say today, I, I hope that you get this. If you're taking notes, write this down in bold, highlight it, underline it, parentheses, put stickers by it, whatever you got to do, okay? But to me, this was the game changer. And that's this reality. The reality is that all education, all education, secular education, Christian education, Islamic education, whatever. All education is discipleship. All education is discipleship. All education is a padea of something. All education is discipleship. The only question is what? Is to what are they being discipled? To what are they being educated? What's the point? What's the end game? Does that make sense? Right? Education is not neutral. None of it is. Education is not neutral, because you may be thinking, Pastor Joe, regardless of where our kids go to school, regardless of how they are educated, I mean, two plus two equals four, right? Well, these days, not necessarily, right? But even even if we start with that baseline of two plus two equals four, in, in regardless of the system of education. The the better question is why? Why does 2 plus 2 equal 4? Is it because a bunch of random atoms randomly collided in a random sort of way that over time eventually developed to the human brain that just kind of came up with this random numerical system? I'm oversimplifying it. I don't teach math. There's a reason. But you get my point. Or... Four. does two plus two equal four? Because the sovereign God of the universe, who lit the stars, who knit the very bones of the earth, crafted the universe in such a way that for his glory and for our good, two plus two ought to equal four. Now, those are two very different worldviews. Those are two very different ways of thinking. And you might be thinking, well, at the end of the day, two plus two is two equals four. Well, yes, but for how long? Right? It's just an example. Parents, grandparents, want to be parents one day. Church members. What do you want? Or maybe a better question: what is? the padea of your child's education. To be a good steward of our children, Jesus, I believe, is calling us to ensure that our children are being brought up, trained, discipled, educated, in the culture of Christ, one centered on his word. And this is the padea of the Lord. So second question, to what does the padea of the Lord apply, right? So, okay, pastor, so what you are saying is that we should commit to bring our kids to church, to have them listen to Pastor Aaron's sermons during the week when they get cranky and they need to take a nap, when, you know, to put them in, to put them in Sunday school, uh, to, to give them good Bible instruction at home. That's what we need to do. Well, yes, right? That's a different sermon, but yes. But there's more. But wait, there's more, right? How far do we take this? To what does this apply, this padea of the Lord? Does it just apply to Bible and theology, as important as those things are? Well, as I hope you've seen from the text, no. To put it succinctly, the padea of the Lord stretches, extends, as far as the Word of God does, which is to say, in everything. How invasive should the Padea of the Lord be? Well, let's look at our text. Second Timothy again, chapter three. Uh, yeah, chapter three, verse seventeen. All scriptures breathed out by God, so that, verse 17, the man of God may be complete and equipped for what? For every good work. Now I went a little, I did some dumpster diving. On this "every good work" phrase, and I'm not going to bore you with the details, but the point is that this term "every good work" it's a fascinating Paulism, and and what I mean by that is, is Paul uses it in his letters and uses it quite a bit, it's, in, it's it's in multiple letters and he uses it in exactly the same way, right? And and one of the reasons it's fascinating is because I don't know about you, but every you, you, those of you that have been in church. You may recognize this phrase. You've probably heard this word before, every good work, right? And what do we, how do we typically, how does our minds often automatically interpret this? We automatically interpret this to mean every good, parentheses, church work, right? I mean, maybe I'm the only one. But as I've looked at it, I typically think to me, oh, Scripture is, is profitable for every good church work. It's good for missions. It's good for evangelism. It's good for preaching. It's good for Bible study. It's good for doctrine and, and devotion and these sorts of things. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, but he's really saying more than that. Every good work means all things. Every time Paul uses it, he's getting to a sense of meaning all things. The everyday things. The normal things that we do over the course of the day. It's not limited to certain academic subjects. It's not limited to certain times or days of the week like Sunday mornings. It's not limited to certain vocations like being a pastor or a missionary or a counselor. It is everything. It is literally every work, everything that you do, everything that you think. The scriptures, the very breath of God trains us for everything. Yes, as a Christian, but also as, quite frankly, a human. It trains us as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as a church member. But also as an engineer, an artist, a writer, a plumber, a mason, a lawyer, an oil field worker. We can go on. The scripture is not only profitable for Bible and theology, but also for the other means by which we understand And subdue the world around us. Like math, science, English, home economics, ethics, carpentry, composition, and yes, perhaps even French. Mm -hmm. Every vocation, every subject, everything you and your child should learn is made better. Made profitable by the word of God. Every good work actually does mean every good work. And this is the padea of the Lord, training that is not just limited to corporate worship and children's ministry, but the fullness, sufficiency, and the glory of God's word that informs all of creation, from substitutionary atonement to Shakespeare to string theory. So then we get to the tip of the spear, if you will. Third question, how does the Padea fit into how we educate our children? So, How do we do this? How do we make sure that our kids are educated in everything with a fundamental foundation of God's word? So by now, if you've been paying attention, you have not been nodding off in the back, by now, I assume... You have sussed out where I'm going with this. Here's where I get a little personal, quite frankly. And will perhaps step on a few toes, which is just a Greek word for ego, right? Christ calls us, and calling is really just a nice word for command. Christ calls those who follow him to steward his gifts well. And children are one of his chief gifts, And that gift must be stewarded so as not to provoke them to the path of the fool, to the way of destruction. The Bible gives us a principle for this stewardship to bring them up in the padea of the Lord. His culture, his way of life that stretches into every good work, into everything that they are and everything that they will do. As we say around Christchurch, all of Christ in all of life. And so if all of this is true, spoiler alert, it is, and then this must also inform the systems or the means by which we train or educate our children. So this is where I'm going in case you have not already guessed. Not all education systems or methods allow you to most fully bring them up in the padea of the Lord. In fact, some systems, methods do the opposite. And they will train up your children in the padea of some other God. And yes, so that I may be abundantly clear, I am most especially referring to modern government schools, but also to those private schools who insist on conforming to the image of this world, the technical word for this is state accreditation, and follow the same padea of the world, with maybe a little time set aside for a Bible class which treats it like some sort of disconnected historical artifact. As the disciples said of Jesus' own teaching, these are hard words, no doubt about it. I want to fully acknowledge that. I'm a public school kid. My wife is a public school kid. Um, I, the way I typically explain it is that I, I survived, right? Um, and I, I would hope, I'm going to just say what I would want for my kids. What I want for my kids is more than mere survival. I would want for them more than just survival being the best case scenario, if that makes sense. It's a difficult word. I know it. And yet, despite its difficulty, I believe this is what the Lord would have for his people. That our children, the talents he has given us, would not be buried in the ground, but rather would be invested in a distinctly Christian education. Be it homeschool with a wisely chosen curriculum and within a community of like-minded families, or in a formal Christian school, with a philosophy and method of education whose substance rests on the very breath of God. And it just so happens I know where one of those exists. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, but pastor, what about this? What about that? What about this circumstance or this exception or this category? Yes. There are plenty of uh, circumstances and exceptions that we could probably rattle off, right? But... Set, set those aside for just a moment. I'm not going to necessarily say that they're irre, ir, ir, irrelevant, but set them aside for a moment. We could spend the afternoon coming up with misapplications of other texts, extenuating circumstances, and possible exceptions. But I simply ask you to consider the text. Consider what Christ commands concerning the education, the discipleship of our children. And see if perhaps, rather than adjusting the command, perhaps it is your perceptions and expectations that should be adjusted. Ignore for a moment your financial fears. Ignore for a moment the potential for odd looks and passive-aggressive comments that you would expect from friends and family. Ignore your own doubts from personal experience or the siren song of modernity which says that the state is who is best equipped to disciple your children. Set aside these things and ask yourself simply, what would the text, the breath of God, have me do? According to whose standard should I disciple or should I educate my children? Whom will I allow to define what a complete or educated person looks like? I believe once you honestly answer these questions according to God's word, the rest will fall into place. Now, I'm going to come, uh, come back up here or have an opportunity to talk to you more about Christ Church Academy here in Lafayette in a minute. But let me end with this. At the end of the day, as with every other area of parenting, we are to trust in the Lord for all things. Right? Trust in the one who gives us these loud and smelly talents to love and steward as he would have us love and steward them. Trust in the Lord. Follow his word in every area of life. He will equip us for every good work, even educating and discipling our children. Amen. Let's pray.